0: I'm twice as old as you, so you know I generated these ideas a long time ago. But they're ideas that you're very much simpatico with. Hmm. But your skill has been mostly demonstrated as a collaborator. You get along with people. That's the nature of your work, and you work have worked in institutions. And in fact, um, we're going to talk a little bit about Maya Salovitz in your interview with her. Uh, you demonstrate in that interview the ability to both, you know, s- stake out some of your own ground, but at the same time, you know, not to put Maya back on her haunches, which wouldn't work. You know what I mean? That You yeah. didn't invite a the show to dispute her. So maybe we can point out a couple of instances in that as a little bit of a demonstration of how you, well, this, this podcast and your own approach or works in progress, where you're balancing, you have your own ideas as you expressed at the end of that podcast with uh, your interview with Maya. So let me just jump in and say, did you feel that different your different perspectives were coming out, yours and Maya Salovitz's, and when you interviewed her? And can you think of any examples of where that happened?
1: I... I try not to infuse my perspective too much. I'm trying when I do those interviews to figure out how I can allow people to make the best, give the best interpretation of their own arguments. So, uh, I I wasn't exactly trying to, you know, I wasn't trying to give my two cents, but I could definitely see where we were disagreeing. Um, Yeah, we're going to say that. At one
0: point where that came out, you were pretty kind. I mean, in general, that's not your style, but one time where it sort of came out, (laughs) it almost burst out, it was unavoidable. Um, (laughs) You were discussing, she was discussing, um, well, people who have a purpose and support in life will succeed better, but you can't give them that. And then you sort of burst out and said, well, that's what I tried to do. Do you recall that?
1: It's like the they found the fundamental principle of the of our program and our approach and our thoughts are that well we should be building people up wherever they are and living out values. Well, isn't that, isn't that just inferred from from going a direction that you want to go? And so that I had to I had to build that out. I don't know what we were disagreeing with, but
0: well. I would, the way I would put it, Maya takes things as, Maya's not a therapist. Um, To the extent that she's a therapist, and I think this is what comes out in all her work, and to to some extent in your interview, Maya thinks they're going to (sighs) come, Maya doesn't believe exactly in the disease theory or AA, but she believes in treatment, but treatment isn't psychotherapy for her. She she believes that there's going to be a biological cure for everything that ails everybody. She thinks that they're ferreting around in these ma- massive data sets and they're going to come up with something to deal with addiction. So in many ways, I, in many ways I find Maya it's a disease theorist. She doesn't come out exactly and say she's not a disease theorist. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I'll point out an example. I saw where that came up at the end of your interview. But let me let me, I wanted to begin by you, you mentioned the life process program that we both participated in. There's now something in um, uh, Wikipedia called the Life Process Model of Addiction. And this is, I'll just read what it says. The life process model of addiction is the view that addiction is not a disease but rather a habitual response and a source of gratification and security that can be understood only in the context of social relationships and experiences. This model of addiction is in opposition to the disease model of addiction." Do you think Maya Salovitz believes it's a habitual response and source of gratification and security that can only be understood in the context of social relationships and experiences? Does this, would she agree with that?
1: The, the term only makes me say no.
0: Right. I think she would say those things are sort of secondary, which is sort of where Norovoco is. Well, it's sort of almost like, well, that's why you take a lot of drugs and then you become addicted. Or in Maya's case, she's looking for some kind of underlying mechanism that explains why some people become addicted. She just an explanation like that for herself. And it's not a it's not a psychological explanation and again you and at the end of your interview with her that sort of came up
1: no that's the tricky part is i she maya says those things i mean she said all through the interview she says in her book that that you know it's social determinants it's psychological factors it's the whole person but she but she acts when pressed as though there's something more important than those things
0: Well, let me jump to the end of your interview. I thought it was like, uh, you at the end, you said, well, I'll have to discuss this some other time. is looking for some mechanism that explains addiction. And her latest thing now, at one point, it used to be instant gratification, fine. Her latest thing is now that people have a kind of a perceptual thing about the universe that makes them susceptible to drug addiction modifications. Do you remember that? At the very end of your interview, she started talking about processing information and a perceptual thing, do you recall?
1: Mm, which part do you mean? I think I might, it could be two parts.
0: I, I'll tell you what you
1: said. So, she, so when she was talking about her growing up with autism, is that, what she, is that what you mean?
0: No, she was talking about Maya's looking, why did she become addicted? She had some kind of internal mechanism that drugs solve. And, right. what is, and what is that mechanism? She would say, oh, you know, she, she, she's explicit that she wasn't traumatized, but she believes it's trauma for a lot of people. In her case, it wasn't trauma. But she described when she was, you know, she, she wasn't a graceful young person. She wasn't a person who was found it easy to smoothly interact with other people.
1: Right. That's, that's, uh, that's what I mean. She was saying, she t- t- talks about that all in the umbrella of autism. So she feels the, those things are, that's that's why I thought you were going there because she says, well, and then once I learned, I, I read the definition or the criteria for Asperger's syndrome or autism. I said, well, there it is. And so now she's, she's, she takes antidepressants and whatever it is. And it, yeah, that, that was interesting to me because what I was hearing her say really was that she just had to sort of develop those skills. But What she was trying to tell me was that now that she knew that that was the deficiency that she'll have forever, that now she can take these drugs and things are a little better for her now that she knows. And I, I was just sort of baffled at that point. I was thinking, but aren't you telling me that you found that out and then you dealt with it? And And of course, for me, I went down that same track, except I just I got a little further. I think maybe in the in the personal development side of things. So she sort of said, I mean, she says both that. Obviously,
0: Maya Solovitz, you know, is not the awkward teenager and college student that she, she's married. Right, right. She has a career. <clears throat> She's a much better interview. She used to be somewhat awkward and skittish when she does interviews. Now she's making presentations. I mean, Maya Salavitz is a changed person. That came out, by the way, in one interesting exchange where you said, well, ultimately, you'd sort of like to take heroin again. And she went into her rap, which you've had before with other people like Dee, where she says, well, I could never take it. You know, I would always resolve I'll take less heroin, but I never really could. Okay. But she was only taking heroin in her early twenties. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, for one thing, my only very belatedly, I think perhaps in her forties, started drinking white wine. So she might have, she would have said the same thing about white wine, right, right, right. In her life now it's ridiculous. She would laugh, and everybody would laugh to think, well, myself is going to have a white wine, some white wine, and she's going to start going out in the street and shooting up speedballs, you know. Yeah, but
1: yeah, and and you're right. That's the thing because you can. It, You know, no one's going to say, this is very tricky, no one will say, um, well, come on, Maya, you would have said it with white wine, just try it, try some heroin again. Just let's see where it takes you. No one's saying that, no one thinks that if she makes a choice, she makes a choice, but as a theorist with some influence and uh, an audience, it's, it's, it's fair to ask, you know, you had this situation then, but now you've described developing this into almost a new person who almost you kind of couldn't have these destructive relationships, way too much going for you. What did she say? Cats and a great job. And so, you know, isn't it possible that someone like you could return to use if you ever decided to and not, even, and not get you know, carried away with it? It has to at least be a possibility. And of course, that always comes up with everybody like Maya and millions of others.
0: When they go to the hospital and they have to take anesthesia, you know, and something more powerful than you can find anywhere. I mean, people take fentanyl in the hospital. That's what it was invented for. And it's useful and it's a positive experience. And you didn't answer that specifically. You might have, you've said that about yourself. But people all sort of put that in a separate category. Well, you know, I'm in the hospital, you know, blah, 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 blah.
1: She said that, though. She said she would take, take painkillers, but she would like her husband to keep the, the bottle.
0: Whatever. I mean, another way of putting that is like her husband, which, you know, hopefully I know nothing about her husband or her marriage, but sort of that's a little bit why people are married, you know what I mean? In other words, you don't give them that job, but, you know, a husband or a p- partner or a wife might say, how are you doing with that thing? You know, are you thinking about that? And that's one of the ingredients that she recognizes and the Life Process Program recognizes is an antidote to addiction when you have that kind of thing. Then she said something kind of almost humorous. She said, well, maybe when I'm 99, and then you go, wait, well, okay, what about 79? Let's cut (laughs) off 20 years then, you know what I mean? When you're kind of, you know, maybe not as active on the circuit and, you know, you're kind of laying around the living room you really think you'd react the same way when you're 70 and that all of course comes up because um, oh God you're not you're not so good at helping me with this there's a famous Irish actor who was the most famous drug abuser of his time he appeared later in life in his 70s and then he would go in the Johnny Carson show and say you know I've been I've been abstaining now and been in AA for 20 years and everybody'd cheer. And then he appeared like as Dumbledore for somebody like that in the, that series. And he was back in Ireland. They filmed and he said, you know, all my relatives are dead in their grave and I'm in Ireland and I'm not having the Guinness. And he started going to the local pub. <laughs> he'd have a couple of Guinness. And you know, he's like, you know, you'd say, "Well, I said, oh man, for God's sake, he's got grandchildren. Of course, he's not going to go do all the crazy. He almost died around cocaine and Of course, he's not going to do that. But then, of course, that's our whole point.
1: Is it it Richard Harris?
0: Richard Harris. Exactly. Well done. All right. I I underestimated your (laughs) uh, (laughs) IQ. Richard Harris. You know, he was famous in recovery. And then it's actually in his Wikipedia entry, you know. But nobody talks about that. And what does it mean? Well, I mean, obviously, he's a different person in the 70s when he's a grandfather. Obviously. And um, some people change a little faster than that. You know, and he might have himself, but you know, maybe he didn't give himself that leeway. And Maya Zalovitz is in some process of, that she's changed considerably. Maybe she'll, you know, are continuing to change. But you, um, so getting, she's talking about this, whatever this autism spectrum is. and And she, I thought she described it as a way of processing or focusing on information. And that was at the end of your interview, and then you translated that into humanitarian terms, which I thought was fascinating. You said, oh, I had a similar problem. Now, I don't think people would mistake you and Maya in high school, which occurred at different times, as identical twins. You know, I mean, I, Maya depicts herself as a pretty, you know, awkward person socially. You were almost too adept socially. Mm. But you described yourself, well, you said about yourself, well, that's sort of like me. I would be in a situation and, you know, I get along with people and I talk with them, but then I would get a kind of bigger idea and try and project it outward. And everybody would go, what the hell are you saying? Or, you know, are you crazy? And, all, and it was a little kind of a rejection of who you were. And, you know, people maybe in high school or didn't, maybe throughout life, reject people for the strangest reasons. But because you had different kinds of an uh, outlook on life, you experienced the kind of, a little bit of personal rejection around that. Do I did I get that right? Did I? Yeah, up? yeah. So,
1: that's
0: so about you, right. she's describing perceptual differences, and you translated that into, well, I did see the world differently than other people that I knew that I was friends with, and then you describe exactly what that was and why that's useful. You know, there are several reasons why that's useful. Hers, her approach is non-changeable and manipulable. She mm. sees it as a given, a traumatic given, not in her case, or a biological given. You see it as something that evolved from who you were and where you were in life. And it's something that you could do better or worse at integrating in your life. And after all, that's the business that we're in is to help people integrate who they are into the world that they live in. that's the name of the game. And Maya's done a wonderful job at that. And you've done a good job at that. And thank God, neither of you is a heroin addict anymore. So, you know, we're all happy about that. And then the question becomes, some people are doing less or, or better at that. A surprising number of people do pretty good at it. And we want to recognize and encourage that. And Maya goes back and forth in that. In the same pieces in one that she wrote in New York Times based in her book, she said, people can get better. And then she says, oh, there's all kinds of treatments and and this gets into MAT, which she doesn't call it. She doesn't call MAT. She says, well, and this this was highly significant. I don't like calling addiction treatment medication assisted treatment because you don't call treating depression a medication assisted treatment, you just call treatment. By the way, they just did a comparative study of um, antidepressants, SSRIs. And, and which um, psychedelic did they compare it to? I, I'm bad with names of that. It's one that everybody knows the name of. Um, ketamine? I think it was ketamine. <clears throat> ketamine 1. They make, they've done millions of dollars of research and all kinds of brain modeling to explain why SSRIs work. And kind of meet it in the comparative trial. Hmm. But she, her idea of treatment, that's her idea of treatment. I think she's open about taking, you know, medications and antidepressants. But that's not our idea of treatment. Our idea of treatment is enhancing people, enhancing the natural processes by which people are able to deal with the world. And they start, and they don't start out at blank slate. They have values and skills and some successes and their lives are improving, and they have relationships. And those are things that we're trying to enhance. But that's not how Maya sees it. And, and, that, and then we get back to what some people call MAT, and she calls treatment. And this brings up one other news item. They, they just announced officially uh, the CDC has come up with its number of drug-related deaths from September 20... 19, 2019 to September 2020, and it's stunning. It's 87,000 deaths. That's a lot of deaths. In 28 in 2018, it was 67. Mm-hmm. That's an increase. And, and people in drug policy rush to say, "Oh, it's the um, it's the pandemic." But that period covers half-pandemic, half-not-pandemic, and the trend was clear from before the pandemic. So, you know, Maya repeated on your interview, well, you know, it, she, she may cl- correctly distinguished naltrixone from, you know, buprenorphine and methadone mm-hmm. and uh, suboxone. And she says, well, studies show that those cut deaths, And the only problem is that we have more and more of those treatments and more and more deaths. And that's, you know, she and the entire drug policy world, a a, a mutual acquaintance of ours, uh, uh, what's Zachary's last name? Siegel. Um, Virtually everybody in the drug policy reform field says, well, these are proven effective. You know, unfortunately, we're out of control of people's dying and there's more you know they advertise the boxer now and billboards you know in iowa now i mean it everybody knows now about mat
1: so you know they and and um you're right i completely agree i'll just say that i i agree with you wholeheartedly i i think about them the kind of work that they do and i know zach i mean he'll travel to places and i think maya does too and talks to people on the ground who are trying to figure out, well, what the hell do I even do? And it's like, he's watching, it's like someone goes to the doctor needing a bandage and they're like, nah, you're just bandage seeking or something like that. You know what I mean? They're, they're watching people be shut down for the only game that they know to be able to better their lives. You're, you're making a broader statement, which is how can you say that it, I, you get that you might want to argue in favor of mat in favor of just treating people all the same and just allowing people to get the things that they want but on a policy level you're talking about the drug policy alliance well how can you say these are proven to work at what level are you talking about the proven to work an individual life for how long for a whole culture so
0: well i'll re i'll anticipate a discussion uh, ethan says he's going to interview me on this podcast i've been a long time um, we have an unusually—I don't know. I mean, he maybe he has a million intimate relationships like this, but we had—we've uh, known each other quite a long time personally, and know each other's children and spouses. And um, the drug policy alliance was created in 2000. Nine hundred thousand people have died drug-related deaths since 2000. Yeah, the rate is now four times the rate it was then. And so, you know, we can talk about that. Ethan has a framework of looking at things within a 20 or 30 year period. He's got good self-control, that man, compared to me and others. He could come up, I mean, you know, when he started (coughs) the idea back, I knew him back when he was at Princeton and I was working nearby. And, you know, he came up with harm reduction. He, He didn't invent it. And then having the Drug Policy Alliance and legalizing marijuana and decriminalizing drugs and dealing with social causes. And that's a long-term policy. And he made, he made a deal with the disease adherence. He felt, well, I'm not gonna get anywhere fighting AA in the 12 steps. And his time timeframe, he, he succeeded in creating a remarkably resilient organization that's had a giant impact. I mean, drug policy is now a variable people know, well, let's talk about it now. He Mm. Mm -hmm. even invented that. And the bad news is we're going on a million deaths. And I look at things from a different time perspective. I don't know if I want to call it eternity, but over centuries. And I say we're in an evolving period towards which many of the people who are reformers, and I kind of include Mark Lewis and my... uh, and even our, our, our great hero, Carl Hardin, of increasingly chemicalizing the solution to addiction and in some sub rows away, viewing it as a disease. And that ultimately is the overall trend. And that's what's going to kill us as, as, as an, a functioning civilization, along with many other things. It's not the top of the list. There's the environment and inequality. And so, We increasingly, to the extent that people say, oh, I'm gonna go get medical treatment for my addiction. And in and of itself, while you're doing it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, On the other hand, it's a part of an overall transition that people didn't used to think in terms of, and not thinking in terms of that, thinking of of addiction as the normal life process program says, let's think of addiction as a normal life process. It's something that every human being knows something about in some area of their life. Some people have gone through worse transitions of it than others. Your grandmother used to know that people used to do things when they were younger that they ceased to do when they were older. And, entr- and entr- transitioning from that entirely common sense life process view to uh, the addictive disease view and treatment has actually rendered us less and less, more and more defenseless against that. That's a somber note. <laughs> I mean, we're not doing well. <clears throat> you know, uh, the CDC, the, the, uh, this was a news item this past week. 87,000 deaths from September 2019 to 2020. I mean, we're the only organization and the only uh, interest group a drug policy reform, which congratulates itself at a time, it's an an epidemic that's as bad as the epidemic everybody's otherwise concerned with. And people refer to it as an epidemic. And so where have we gotten exactly? You know, my concept is we need an entirely different reconceptualization of how it is, what we're dealing with and how we're dealing with it. So anyhow, getting, I mean, that's why your natural tendency is to translate things into human terms. You're—I don't know if you would call yourself a scientist, but when when you talk about how people process information, you describe it in very humanistic terms, and then how you need to improve that, and it can be done. So, uh, in my hometown opioids are still stealing lives. Um, Clean for almost two years with a good job as the lead install technician at an HVAC company, married and with two little sons. He seemed to be winning the fight. A few months before his death, this is a guy who's writing, uh, somebody named Sean McCreech, talking about how the opioids are still stealing lives. I had come home to write about what it was like to grow up in a society washed wash prescription drugs. So he's too many prescription drugs. I thought I had enough distance to look back and freeze frame the blur of high school years, but knew I couldn't do it justice without talking to David. He had more clarity about this catastrophe than anyone. So he interviewed him, and then he died. Now all I have left of him, apart from some ashes, are the pages of notes. Everybody was dabbling in high school to remind me in that conversation. It was fun, readily available, expensive, but everybody would put their money together and it would be a social thing. Was that true of your high school, how your you approached drugs?
1: That it was social and that everyone was doing it? Yeah. See, it seemed like it.
0: When I grew up when drugs were exclusionary. There was a small group of people that did it. And of course, it was social for that group. They were more like hippies and musicians and
1: what people tend to do that it's like they wh- whoever their in group is is who they see all the time and and tend to think that's everybody you know people with smokers tend to people who are smokers tend to know more smokers since i don't smoke anymore i'm rarely around smokers it's funny how just little things like that distance you from other people so probably I, maybe the the truth is like 80 percent of people didn't do drugs all the time in high school but it seemed like everyone did
0: So we don't know. And so just reading the story, we might think, well, I don't want to cut down on him. Sean McCreech is an editorial assistant in the New York Times. You know, he obviously, he did something. I don't know. He went to some college, some big university, and he got a job writing opinion for the New York Times. So he's, you know, somewhere else. And and we don't know. Well, David's dead. In a period of sobriety, David got married four years ago. His first son was born. More than anything else, it was fatherhood that it compelled him to get and stay sober. But there were slip-ups. It's ongoing that any second, I can go back. How does that jibe with your experience? And, you know, this is how we began the conversation. Yeah. With Maya.
1: Yeah. It doesn't. I mean, it just doesn't. The, the whole I'm walking on eggshells thing, it's just feel like I build a bigger and bigger foundation the more I do in life. The more that's interesting to me and the more I build, it's just not, it's not a thing. So
0: you wonder, you know, Maya went to Hazelton like rehab and they tell them you can never get over addiction and you're whatever, your disease is out in the parking lot exercising while you're in here not using things. And so my, my concept is she half believes that and half doesn't believe that.
1: Well, here's I'm sorry, please. Oh, you go. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I, please. And I'll, I'll, I have, I'll remember.
0: I mean, she doesn't really believe that about her. I mean, she remembers all that as part of her. Uh, we could make some physiological things, some sort of part of her imprint in memory, but she bought that. And, you know, she was really in bad shape. And then she stopped doing all that. So she was kind of grateful. You know, I'm pretty happy I'm not, you know, shooting up, you know, left and right and down to whatever, 60, whatever she, you know, that was bad. It's like going to the hospital and the surgeon performs a surgery and you're better and you go, wow, God love him. But she's sort of, everything else she's learned since then and knows about herself tells her something different. And so she's going in between those two poles. This guy never got out of, and you're on the other side of that pole. So somebody somewhere like is saying about you, like some people say about Drew Barrymore, she's just about getting ready to relapse. Now that she's 40s and has, I think, teenage daughters, you know, she's just about ready to go back to that 13-year-old, whatever she was doing in nightclubs in New York, you know, snorting cocaine whatever the hell else she was doing.
1: My wife is a perfect case study here. Uh, This is a non-drug related, so it brings it to the common sense level that no one's going to jump on. She she and I were driving one time from here. We live in Vermont down to South Carolina where some of her family is. And on the way down, right around Scranton, Pennsylvania, we encountered a tornado. And so we were driving in a tornado. I mean, there's hail falling, incredible winds, cars blowing off the road. And we we managed to coast into a hotel, park in a parking garage, and we were safe for the night. But she was terrified i was too but she really really stuck with her to the extent that every a few years after that every time we would drive and it would start raining i would need to drive you know she started feeling like well i can't drive when it's raining because what if this happens again and um of course that's like a self-fulfilling thing because if she's nervous every time it rains that something horrible is going to happen she becomes a worse driver and all of that but then we had a daughter and it's like, sometimes we're going to need to She's going to need to drive in the rain. So she did her own sort of like cognitive behavioral or exposure kind of therapy technique, just a natural. And she would talk to me about it. Like, okay, it's raining, whatever it rains. Sometimes I've driven in the rain a million times. I'm fine. It she just, it was a self cure. Right. And, it, but you could imagine if she thought it's differently.
0: Too. It's like, well, I would never drive in the rain again. Oh, I've got a daughter and she has to go to the doctor. Yep. Well, I'm not.
1: Yeah. There you go. And yeah, values I'm not stay
0: home because I'm. I have a rain phobia. You can't do that.
1: So that. So you. Are, you can't avoid there being values like this. And so that's something that you might mention to her. If I were a clinician and this or a drug or something, you might say, "Well, you did tell me that it's important to you to get your daughter from A to B. So that's a value, right? But." Beyond that.
0: And that's the single value the most people undergo with sort of out doing anything or thinking about it. They sort of like, oh, you know, I'm an addict or blah, 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 blah. Oh, I had a child. You know, let's get clear here. There's certain things I just can't do. And that's the most important. I didn't really actually 100% make a decision unconscious eliciting of a value that changes who people are addiction-wise.
1: Right, just percolating values that, that, that you start to become aware of. So, so you can imagine if she only told herself the story that she could never drive anytime it started raining again, that would really be tough on her. And I mean, she would, that really would be like walking on eggshells. But if everyone around her said, oh, you drove in a tornado? Don't you know you can never drive when it starts raining again? I and mean, you could imagine how just crippling of an experience that would be and the thing is she probably would have to find a way to drive in the rain again and she would think she was sinning or something like that so i, I we we talk about that and joke about it but it actually is a perfect like case study for what we're talking about only if you think the drugs and, and can you now
0: everybody knows once and a and so my ex-wife had a friend whose father was a pretty doggone alcoholic and she only learned that thing that if your father's an alcoholic, you're gonna be an alcoholic, after she kind of grew up and was like just a regular person. And she actually said, oh, thank God, nobody ever told me that, you know, when I was growing up and learning to just like drink wine, like everybody else, you know, and now she was like a regular person in an upscale Morris County suburb drinking wine. And so um, we're actually in the process of conveying a model of addiction to people which, you know, I should cross myself before saying this, even though Maya and I are both Jewish, Maya still partly subscribes to, which is this is some permanent indelible thing in you that means you can never outgrow it. Whereas in general, the running assumption for a large part of history or people in our history or the kind of experience of civilization that we've had, people
1: do outgrow it.
0: And she so, thinks
1: she thinks most people outgrow it. Some people never do. I think that's what I think that's where she's sitting.
0: And then and and then the people. So that's a shifting group. And then you were the debate that you were having was well, can you change that? Well, she's one of the people who couldn't outgrow it, but did outgrow it. She didn't look like a a candidate. Mm-hmm. And then you were, and then she's sort of saying, well, there's still a residual group of people who can't outgrow it. And then you were saying, that's when you interjected, not not impolitely, but that's the job, the business I'm in. That's when you said, well, that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Because what's the alternative with that group of people, but more, but we're saying something more. We're saying that they're convincing people, David, David, Maybe the guy who got a job, he got married, he had two kids, he's a good candidate for not resuming his drug addiction. You know, if a person comes in and they're married and they have children, you're going to do better with them. I mean, there's something called harm reduction. Like, as,
1: what, as, a, as a clinician, you mean, if someone comes in to see it? Yeah,
0: yeah. There's something called what housing where there are people in the streets in Seattle and other cities who drink out of a brown paper bag, and then you put them in a house and you say, you can drink here if you want, but you won't be exposed to the elements and you won't get arrested. And even they cut back under those circumstances. But they're not, they're people you're saying, well, we're not starting out, you know, hoping that we're going to make them into mainstream characters, you know, who go to work every day. You know, we're not in that kind situation. Right. But that's different from what, so when people come into your office or Contact you over Zoom, and they have a family, and they have a life in place. You're automatically thinking, and that's most of our clients. Well, we we've got a head start here. Yeah, we should be able to make headway. So you know, this guy wasn't a therapist. You know, I'll read his name. It's Sean McPhee. is a therapist. He's a the guy who's writing about the opioid crisis, and you know. Um, he just, David's an old friend of his, that's all. But if we're a helper, or we know somebody who's had those accretions and additions, we're thinking we're in a much stronger place.
1: When, you know, I work with adolescents, high school age students, and um, I always do this exercise with them in one of my classes it's called My Ideal Future. And they just, I have them talk about different dimensions of their life and where they are now. And then how they see their future and what would make it great if if you just cut out all the obstacles you think might be in the way and just pretend that you know you could definitely get all the things you want what would it look like and all every single one has things like family work relationships the things that when people come in and they say well i have these things i don't want to lose them they're thinking oh no i'm losing all these things and i'm thinking Oh, great. You have these things so that, you know, you get a head start. So it works in, uh, throughout the lifespan.
0: And then we, and that's an exercise we do in the life process program. We say, well, can you project yourself into your future? And then you say, what you're trying to do with these kids is, well, how are you going to get there? You know, mm-hmm. you're working with the kid and you sort of say, you're sort of saying, well, what do you think is an idea of life? And then you sort of say, well, okay, how do you think you get from here to there? It's not, mag- it's not magic, you know? You, well, I'd like a family. Well, you're going to have to marry somebody. <laughs> and you're going to probably have to have some kind of job and way of supporting yourself. So we're all here on the same page here. Op-ed, please don't yell at me. I'm trying to help. This is a med page. Um, we're just, maybe we can end with this. A doctor treating individuals with substance use disorders understands the fear of frustration. By Constantine... Ayanu, M.D., for many years I have treated individuals with substance use disorders. I think it's fair to say you and I never have said that sentence. You know what I mean? You and I, I mean, substance use disorders, I've written that down someplace. We don't approach people, how do we approach? We don't think of them as having a substance use disorder. What do we think of?
1: I'm, well, I don't really think of anything usually we ask them what's going on right
0: we're not in the position. we're doing a coaching service so we don't have to diagnose people and sometimes people ask for a diagnosis and we say well why don't we just talk about what your problems are i have found this work to be both gratifying and frustrating parts of the frustration stem from interactions with families Families, of course, are fearful and frustrated. They're watching their loved ones die, in quotation marks, before their eyes, and once brain has changed. This is MedPage. MedPage is totally reasonable. They look at all the data. There's no data here. This is a clinician's ruminations. It is difficult to understand their loved one's brain has changed, that we do know that this is a chronic relapsing disease. And that many individuals die from their illness. So, I don't know. I don't want to say. I'd shoot myself before I'd say that to anybody.
1: Well, you know, I thought that your your analysis about drug policy reformers and the journalists was a little bit bleak. But at least you had some substance and a way to get to where we went want to go. I mean, that just shuts down all doors, doesn't it? Well, and... It
0: appears, it met, I don't know how many, I get it. I mean, what, to 10 million people? I don't know, 20 million people get it? Yeah. And everybody read, I mean, I had my cousin, Rich, read my memoir. My memoir is called, I'll remind people, A Scientific Life on the Edge, My Lonely Quest to Change How We See Addiction. I think anybody watching this, you know, I just think about it in a totally different way a totally different way from Maya, among other people, and certainly from this woman. And the other way is always, ineradicable, it's growing, and I think and fear that in many ways, even people who claim not to believe in it are contributing to it. And it's not having, you know, I I mean, I'm I'm talking, there were two articles, I read one from Ed Page where the doctor says families are opposed to, you know, uh, what I'm doing with them, and what I'm doing is convincing their child, perhaps I don't know if it's always a child, that they have an ineradicable, chronic, brain relapsing brain disease. That's what she's doing, and that's what MedPage is telling people they should do. And so, you know, when we can sign off today, we're. Def- I'm just going to read what the life process for and. The life process program is us. The life process model of addiction on Wikipedia has just showed up in the last couple of months while I'm writing my memoir. The life process model of addiction is the view that addiction is not a disease, but rather a habitual response and source of gratification and security that can be understood only in the context of social relationships and experiences, social imper- and that's how it gets remedied, both at a cultural level And so one last, I guess one last point, how, how is the uh, there's a constant debate in the New York Times about what's going to happen next in the pandemic. And some people say it's actually enriched my life. And some people say, you know, I'm just wilting on the vine here and deteriorating. It's almost like every other day they have one article, one kind or another. Well, I've gotten that more in touch with people in my neighborhood and my family. And other people say, oh, my mind's completely deteriorating. I sit there and everybody's drinking too much. And I guess, you know, where I, I'm writing my memoir and I have to end it at some point. And what, I'm, what we would say, I think, is, and the Life Process Program is part of, the, of what this is about, is within the context of what, I mean, the world's just happening. We're not, we're not going to solve the pandemic. That's not our job. But in that world, there's better and worse ways to proceed. And it's conceivable, and some people say this, that it actually makes, it has enhanced their lives. They've gotten more focused, concentrated more in their work, do less frantic kinds of things, have focused more on key relationships. And the answer to the question of, is that what people have done or are, are doing The answer is some are, some aren't, and the answer to the question of how does an individual function better and how does society function better is that we get more people to go in that direction rather than the reverse. And you pointed out to me, well, there's many, you read millions of things that say, well, people are freaking out and mental illness is increasing, and you pointed out that suicides went down in the pandemic period. And you sort of said, well, what's that show us? And it's sort of, to me, like the same, you know, well, there's a lot of pain pills in society, but when they go up and when they go down, doesn't predict addiction. Something else predicts addiction. Mm-hmm. So you want to summarize this discursive thing? We've talked about, you know, MedPage. We've talked about the New York Times editorial page. We've talked about people who took drugs badly in high school and then didn't stop doing it. We talked about people who took drugs badly when they were young, like Maya, and stopped doing it and yourself. So we covered a ton of turf now. And uh, where do you want to end up this little interaction? And we talked about how you and I, I hope uh, your psychologist, your therapist friend, feels we've improved in our interaction here b- b- based in part on their inputs.
1: Yeah, I'll take, I'll take input any day. And people can pick on me too, you know. Um, uh, well, let me anchor it. I have I have an idea about how to end it. First of all, I'm always um, I'm always it, oh, it's almost funny to me how we pick apart or try to pull the nuance out. Let's say of people who we admire and think do great work. You don't notice we're not we're not talking about Tucker Carlson's views on addiction or something like that. It's it's people who we're we're trying to say there are people doing incredible work and we, in Jesus, we would hate to see that energy going to some, in some direction that that's counterproductive. And that's like a, that's what a good friend or colleague does. And I, I'm always in. So just, just want to put that out there for the people who I just shared the thing with, with uh, Maya Solovitz. And I would write on the things that I shared. I said, this is a great woman doing great work in the field. And then if people see this and say, well, he said he was a great woman. Why are they tearing her apart? You know, whatever. So that's one thing. And the other is there was a question recently that I was going to save, but it's apropos the kind of the last bit that you brought up, which was, and by the way, I have an answer to this. I just don't know if I'm right. It's an intuition. I'd like to hear yours first. The question was, is it conceivable that if we did all the right things that addiction could ever go down to zero, zero people addicted to things?
0: What's your answer?
1: (laughs) Well, I kind of think of it as, I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, but I think that if that's someone's real view on something, real goal, like actual expectation, maybe it should be a goal, like get it to zero because you don't want it. But it's sort of like saying murder should go down to zero. Like obviously anyone wants that. But I, I also sort of think that, If the expectation is that that's what will happen, then that's not really an adult, mature expectation.
0: Let me rephrase the question for you. Do you personally feel, I mean, you know, most of the people that come across in the life process were pretty, you know, they have pretty low-key addictions. Some have pretty bad ones. Yeah, yeah. And you've dealt with, you know, people who were in rehab with heroin. Is there anybody that you feel that you couldn't help? No. I I was I would answer, I would have given that answer on your behalf. And that so we don't expect we I don't I would say we don't even want addiction to go down to zero. Let's not get crazy, you know what I mean? But the question is there's we never stop feeling that we can see a path forward to improving both individual and society's ability to reduce and deal with addiction. That's that's our goal, and that's what we believe.
1: I think that's a nice way to sign off. Thank you so much, Stanton.
0: Pleasure. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. Au revoir.